You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, March 17th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan, who is a tax accountant, is knee-deep, actually, I think he's neck-deep, technically, yeah, neck neck deep deep. in tax returns, and is pulling an all-nighter and couldn't make it tonight. Aww. Yeah, he's like underwater until April 15th. Did you guys finish yours? No, Not yet. yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're the reason people like Evan are neck-deep. That's right. I submitted mine earlier than I ever have in my life, but it took somebody hacking my social security number for me to do that. Oh, wow. And that's, oh, right. that will put a fire under your ass. Before we go on to Forgotten Superheroes, Bob, uh, we want to do a quick update on the AlphaGo contest. So we've Game 5 finished on Tuesday, and... And AlphaGo finished its match against Lee uh, Sodal. It won 4-1, to one, so it clearly won. Um, the, the, when I reported it, it was up 2-0. It did three in a row. It got the third game. So at that point, it had won because it's best out of five, first one to three wins. But they kept going because for a little while, I was like, wait... Why are they doing another match? But I, I realized that they play five games no matter what. So it's not like the first one to three wins. In game four, Lee pulled a brilliant move in the game um, that caused AlphaGo to actually make a mistake. Whoa. And Lee took the game. You know, I was actually glad that Lee won one game. Uh, he, <laughs> you know, he looked so happy. You know, I'm sure he was so he was so bummed and depressed. I was glad he won one, but I was also very glad he did not win that last one. Because even though AlphaGo still would have had had the match, it would have make you you know you you'd have to think that oh the human figured out the machine and it would have it would have he would have kept on winning so yeah. it, it would have put a little bit of a pall on it. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. There might have been a little bit of that going on. I mean, by the fourth game, he figured out how to beat the AI, but it was still just it was really close. Yeah, and and he couldn't replicate it for game five. Like I've played video games, right, where you have pretty decent AI, but still, you know, over time you sort of figure out how to beat the AI. Yeah, even though it totally kicks your ass up front, just because its reflexes are much better than yours, but you learn to exploit its limitations. Yeah, it's hard to to extrapolate from that to to the, uh, Lee's experience with AlphaGo, but he did have to play an unconventional game. To, to beat him in that fourth P- game. Yeah, pe- when he made that one uh, weird move in game four, people were like, what, uh, what the hell is that? What, why is he doing that? They really didn't understand it. The interesting thing for me, though, was one of the reactions after the game. Uh, there's a guy, Jan LeCun, who was Facebook's director of artificial intelligence research. He uh, he had this tweet. He said, congrats to the, to the deep mind AlphaGo team for this grand slam. Um, which is nice, but then he's like, now, can you do it purely through reinforcement learning without pre-training the convolutional net on recorded games between humans? So he's giving, he's giving them a dig. <laughs> he's giving them a dig. Oh. Cause I, I described reinforcement learning where it actually was playing against itself and learning new strategies and techniques without any human intervention at all. And that, that was a key, a key aspect to the training of AlphaGo. Um, so he was giving him a little dig, like, oh, yeah, why don't you do it all that way next time instead of having humans so much in the loop, uh, hand-feeding it, the, you know, the, the moves and the databases of, uh, of games. He, then he made a couple other snarky tweets, and then he was also suggesting that the media attention was overblown. So there's that. He said that. that but then you got to consider, 
you know, where this was coming from. I mean, LeCun's job is director of artificial intelligence for Facebook. And it uh, just so happens that very recently, Facebook announced that they're, they had their own, they were starting to develop their own AI Go program that was going to play like a human. So, to, so when you, when you see that, when you put it in context, it made his comments seem just like, uh, just very petty, very, you know, very sour grapes. You know, it's like, come on, you know, just just congratulate him. He, he should have done what uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg did. He he just said, congrats to the Google DeepMind team on this historic milestone in AI research. We live in exciting times. You know, you just like, nice That's job, classy. guys. Classy, took the high road. And, you know, the AI guy was just like, nah, nah, nah. Like, come on, <laughs> come on, dude. Lame, I know. It just makes you look like, who is this guy? Like, really? You're going to come out swinging like that? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is a director of AI for Facebook, so that's pretty sweet. But, dude, just you know, talk to your PR guy before you start tweeting. Please. I mean, maybe he meant it as to be a friendly, competitive kind of tone. It may no. not come off that way. You know, like you know, the kind of competition between SpaceX and Blue Origin where they're, yeah, where they're trading some snarky comments about, well, that wasn't – Full orbital, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, whatever. It was like to be charitable and in interpreting what other people say, but it could be. But I think that I think that Bob makes a good point. You know, it's funny you, these these higher ups at these huge corporations before they talk in a press conference, before they do a commercial, they have like teams of people around them, like checking off all of the appropriate language and say, oh, probably don't want to say that. Make sure. yeah. yeah, and then they just go on Twitter and say whatever comes out of <laughs> I their know. mouth. I know. It's funny because <laughs> one article I read said that that he bets the a lot of the PR people were happy because that just justifies their existence. You know, see, if he came <laughs> oh, to God. me, I never would have signed off on that comment, you know, so. <laughs> right, 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 right. That is true. Sometimes when Somebody screws up at your job. It's like, yep, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. All right, Bob, tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Yes, this week I'm going to talk about Sir Jagadish Chandra Bose. 1858 to 1937. Uh, Bose was many things, a polymath, physicist, biologist, biophysicist, archaeologist, and even an early sci-fi writer. Very cool guy. He was uh, also one of the most prominent early Indian scientists and also one of the fathers of radio science. And I never heard of him. Uh, Bose. <laughs> no, but this Bo- has nothing to do with the Bose that makes radio. No, no, no. Yeah, uh, I, knew, I, I knew that question was going to come up. Yeah. Um, so Bose earned multiple degrees from Cambridge and the University of London in the, in the 1880s. Uh, when he returned to India, the Presidency College in Calcutta appointed him professor of physics and which was, uh, you know, quite prestigious. And, uh, and this despite protests by the college administration, uh, they were not happy uh, that th- this guy just comes back and he gets this position. Uh, so they were kind of jerks to him. They, they, the administration made sure he did not have a lab and also that he was paid one half to one third the salary he should have gotten. It was really a huge slap in the face. And he was pretty cool about it. He basically did not accept payment for three years. He refused to be paid. And then and after three years, somebody came to their senses and said, all right, I mean, this is this is silly. And they paid him all his back pay, all his back pay at, at the salary that he should have been getting. So that was kind of cool. But Bose was a bona fide pioneer in biophysics. Uh, he was the first to note the similarities between plant and animal and animals based on their reactions to external stimuli. So he was kind of ahead of the curve in spotting this 
parallelism between uh, animals and, and, and plant physiology. Um, that was a big coup for him. But uh, also, when you think of wireless radio communications, though, who do you think of? You, you think of Marconi, you think of Tesla, but not Bose. Um, yet he was certainly in the mix in the late 1800s. He had invaluable insights and inventions, uh, so much so that the IEEE relatively recently named him one of the fathers of radio science. I mean, that's they, don't, they wouldn't just do that on a whim. This guy made some pretty important contributions. And that there are some people that, uh, although I, I, I tend to disagree, that were saying that he that he was first. He, he totally beat out Marconi and Tesla. And it's, a, it's kind of controversial. And, and it seems like he wasn't quite first on some of those big things, but he had major contributions. Uh, for Seems example, like there's always that controversy about who was first. Yeah, mm-hmm. from, from what I would gather, um, like in terms of just radio transmission, uh, Tesla actually invented it first, but he just designed it, whereas whereas Marconi kind of built it. So you know, so definitely Tesla yeah. deserves some major kudos there. But but Bose is right in there. He, uh, he was the first to discover millimeter length electromagnetic waves, which was this this was actually a very key insight because he realized that the closer the uh, the size of the radiation, the frequency of the radiation uh, came to optical uh, light. The, the more it would behave like optics in terms of reflection and things like that. So he was one of the first to, to examine uh, electromagnetic waves at, at that at that size. And uh, he also invented, uh, which are now commonplace, uh, things like microwave components. He was also the one of the he was the first to use a semiconductor junction to detect radio waves. Some people credit him with being the first to invent a wireless detection device, although it seems like he, he wasn't the first, although he was, you know, uh, definitely among the first, and it was, you know, with just a span of a few years, really, I think. And regardless if he was first or not, his, his invention certainly contributed to the later development of solid-state physics. And then there's a quote from Sir Neville Mott, Nobel laureate in 1977. He won the Nobel for his, his own contributions to solid-state electronics. He said, J.C. Bose was at least 60 years ahead of his time. In fact, he had anticipated the existence of P-type and N-type semiconductors, uh, which is huge. But one reason why I think Bose is obscure, actually be it's because I think, partly at least, because of his known, his very known refusal to patent any of his inventions. He, he, I think he patented one of his many, many, de- many devices, and that's because his, his buddies kind of forced him to do it. But he refused, as a general principle, to patent anything because he thought that his ideas and inventions should be free for everyone to use wow. and, and capitalize on, uh, which is something you don't see very often these days. Uh, so that was kind of it's that's kind of a a very, a very honorable attribute and a little frustrating because uh, you know he would probably be more remembered today and he could have made a boatload of money too as well <laughs> but I think it's still an amazing thing that he did so remember Sir Jagadish Chandra Bose mention him to your friends perhaps when discussing Hertzian waves and imperfect junction coherers cool oh, yeah I, lo- I love scientists who like were polymaths, right? Who did everything. Yeah. Oh my God. There's something just to me that's very compelling. Something and I like, actually, yeah. And I narrowed that. I, I pared that list down. It was a couple more things he did. It's like, oh, that's too much, man. I can want to read all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, the guy was, was incredible. Do you think that it was easier to be a polymath a long time ago? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I've always true. wondered that, like that we know yeah, a lot a now that we didn't know before. And so the level of technical proficiency that you need to be good at one thing is 
extreme. It's hard to contribute to a field unless you really dedicate yeah. a lot of time mm-hmm. and effort absolutely, to it. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, this guy, you know, a lot of people at that time, there's even a couple other guys that uh, were that were contributing heavily to or to wireless radio transmissions and, and detections. You know, it was it was time. It was time because you had Hertz, you had Maxwell, they you know, electromagnetic electromagnetic waves and radio waves were were theorized and and discovered and it was and people were just clamoring to take advantage of this new I mean God imagine oh wow look at this electromagnetic waves what can we do with that I mean it's yeah, just yeah. a magnificently huge industry so Jay you know what I need what do you I need? need a computer assistant to totally run my life <laughs> yeah I, I stumbled on this I thought this was a really cool piece of technology that's coming out and it's also um, we're going to talk a little bit about AI so we are going to see some amazing advances in computer technology in the near future we talk about this all the time but we're really on the cusp of some some massive innovation that's finally going to trickle down into um, into our everyday lives so artificial intelligence is being developed by um, you know t- globally companies all over the world and they're trying to augment the things that we already do. And when I say AI, I'm not talking about, you know, like a self-conscious machine. Like I, I, I'm certainly not talking about that huge advancement, which we, we're probably very far away from. I mean, more like a piece of software that's fine-tuned to do a narrow task really well, right? So a great example would be like our, like Siri on our iPhones, right? You can ask Siri a question. That question is sent to a very powerful computer at Apple somewhere, and it's processed, so they're using that that super powerful computer to do all the real heavy lifting. The answers then get returned to your phone. You know, I know that Siri isn't really that smart, but the software could do some cool things. I mean, I use Siri all the time and it's, you know, great for hands-free stuff and and doing little things like, you know, helping me put things on my calendar and stuff. Well, the next generation of these kinds of software are coming and they're coming really soon. Like this year, we're going to see some cool things happen. One company's working on an AI that manages your calendar. And you could like, here's some examples, right? So you could set it up with all the different kinds of preferences that you like. Now, let's say that you don't want to schedule a meeting over your lunch break. Uh, you know, if you're having lunch from 12 to one every day, just tell it, don't do that. Or you only want, um, meetings to last 50 minutes or you need a 10 minute break between any meetings that you go to or whatever. I know that I'm in meetings quite a bit with my job, like a lot actually. And, um, I have my own little set of rules that I've made up about how much time do I actually need for lunch? Under what circumstances will I do a meeting over lunch? Um, how much time would I like between meetings or do I need prep time before the next meeting in order to set up the conference call and all that? I actually do have a, a quite a list. So keeping that in mind, so you add the the AI or the, in this instance, um, the, the piece of software I'm talking about is called Amy. You, you add Amy's email address to the email, to CC on your email. So let's say you're typing an email to a bunch of colleagues and you're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to set up a meeting with my assistant for, uh, you know, hopefully Monday or Tuesday of next week in the morning. The AI will read your email. It will contact those people. It'll figure out when the, the best time is to schedule it, and it'll schedule it on everybody's calendar. That's cool. it do the whole thing just from reading your email. So keep this in mind now. And once it figures out like the, the ways that you like to do things, you set up preferences, and then also I think is paying attention to like how you handle it, it'll learn more about you, and, and things will become more refined as time goes by. Now, you can ask the assistant for updates. Like how how's my you know scheduling going for meeting X? You could tell it, hey, I need to reschedule my three o'clock, 
It'll automatically go do that for you. You can cancel a meeting. It'll automatically cancel. The bottom line here is that it's doing all of the stuff that you do with your calendar. Just imagine removing 99% of the time you spend on your calendar. It'll do it all for you. A couple of other cool things. So this kind of AI is called narrow AI because all it does, it does one thing very well. This, this piece of software schedules your calendar. It does it so well, in fact, that um, you know, that's the thing. We don't want it to do anything else. We just want it to do this one thing. But you could take that this software and you can combine it with something like Siri, which is more of a general a general piece of software. And let's say, you know, three or four years from now, Siri has these big other AI components built into it. So then when you tap into Siri's calendar, you're actually tapping into this other AI that's going to do all the work for you, but you'll just think it's Siri, but it's not. It'll be a collection of these different narrow AI pieces of software. Now, this is the kind of thing I, I think we, we, we in our interview with Bruce Hood, um, we, we kind of get into this a little bit, but we were talking about how we're becoming dependent on, on software and on the, you know, our phones and all that stuff. Like once the AI stuff really starts to hit and we really are dependent, I think it's going to be doing things for us where we're going to start to lose skills and, and we're going to be spending our time, you know, essentially just doing other work that, that yeah, we'll AI develop, can't do. We'll develop other skills. That's, that's just the way technology has been forever. As new technologies come on, we, we lose old skills and we gain new skills. I'm good with that. Right? I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm just saying, though, I think what Bruce said was right, though. We will become more dependent as these machines do more work for us. Yeah, we're pretty dependent right now. I also think that there's like a period – there's like a flux period where it actually is – it takes more effort before it takes less effort. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like fixing all of the mistakes it makes are going to be more frustrating than just doing it yourself. Until it actually becomes so perfect and so flawless. But the first time that your AI assistant cancels a meeting they're not supposed to cancel or reschedule something the wrong way, it actually has like really damaging effects on your work life. Yeah, just like the first car was probably a lot less efficient than riding a horse, you know. For sure. Whenever you lateral over to a new technology, it's true. It's often less efficient than the, the, the more primitive but the tweaked out technology it's replacing and you kind of have to muddle through that early phase and but but it's giving you the potential to be tremendously more effective or efficient but i think we're i think we're getting to a tipping point with ai though with these kind of expert yeah. systems and assistance oh, and, yeah. you know alphago is just one example it seems like we're really getting there yeah we have like there's other things happening too guys keep in mind ai is already replacing workers right it, it's yeah. not like this is brand new it's happening right now this is a conversation that's coming up more and more um, we're also getting the uh, IOT, you've heard of this, the Internet of Things, where yeah. everything is online. Um, you know, you couple AI with the ability to affect everything in your life, your house, appliances. One thing I find amazingly interesting is that they're teaching machines now to understand human emotion, recognize and, and be able to interact with human emotion. That's cool. And they're, yeah, they're, and obviously in robotics, they're working the other way. They're trying to make robots that we can read. Right, that will express human emotions. And that's really like a psychological integration that yeah. if robots feel too much like robots, we just will refuse to use them. Yeah, although well, you wonder if that's a temporary thing too, if we'll, mm-hmm. you know, we'll yeah. adapt. So guys, do, do, have any of you heard of cryotherapy? Yeah, <laughs> Sure, of course. Uh-oh. Not cryonics, but cryotherapy. This is uh, exposing your body to extreme low temperatures for therapeutic purposes. There are two basic forms. Uh, 
and these are these are given in spas. I think we talked about this previously. When we did. It was a response to an email, or it was somebody had died in a yeah. cryotherapy chamber. Yeah, that girl and who, so we talked who died. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you either go into the whole, you go in your whole body in the chamber. It's like minus two hundred degrees Fahrenheit, which is about oh minus my God one twenty five or so Celsius. Uh, or you could go in like from your neck down. So your body's in there, but your head is out. So you're still breathing normal air. Oh, does that hurt your lungs when you're inside there without your head? Well, it's very dry. It's very dry. Yeah. yeah. And you <laughs> have to breathe, obviously. The reason why we're talking about it again is because uh, many, many of our listeners emailed us to in- inform me that Joe Rogan spoke about this on a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, and he specifically referenced an article that I had previously written on science-based medicine, and he was highly critical of that article. In fact, mm-hmm. he said it was poorly researched and poorly done. And then sloppy, he, I think he said too. Didn't sloppy. He? he used sloppy at some point. He clearly is has a very negative attitude about my take on the topic. He was interviewing a guest, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and they spoke about they two of them spoke about cryotherapy uh, for about twenty minutes or so on the show. We'll link to that episode. Here's the thing: the reason why I want to talk about it is because during that discussion, they commit a, all the typical logical fallacies that people tend to commit when they're defending a therapy against the claim that it's not science-based or not evidence-based. And so it's instructive, you know. So partly I'm just responding to his, you know, his accusations, but also I think it's just in general very productive. He starts out by doing the thing saying that I didn't do my research, right? That is so common, it's a running gag among us on the show, right, Jay? Oh, 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 the, the Alex, the Alex Akiris, the, yeah, this was, the, oh, God, I love that. Obviously, I did the research. What he didn't like was the conclusions that I came to. Uh, usually when people say they that, like, the scientist or the skeptic didn't do their research, what, he, what they mean is they're not cherry-picking the studies I want them to cherry-pick. Uh, or they're not focusing on the studies I want them to focus on. Which are invariably low-quality ambiguous, blah, 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 right? I mean, or, or not could, relevant, or just right. not relevant. So I was focusing on, which is I tend to do, and I said this is what I'm focusing on, the clinical evidence. The spas are making certain clinical claims for cryotherapy. So I said, okay, what's the evidence for those claims? Obviously, the clinical evidence. Those claims are that it can speed recovery from exercise that it can treat arthritis, reduce the symptoms of arthritis, and then it can help healing from an injury. Uh, and then the crazy ones will say everything, like it cures cancer, right? But even if we dismiss the, the crazy end of the spectrum and we take the more plausible ones, it helps with arthritis, with musculoskeletal symptoms, helps exercise recovery, helps uh, injury recovery. So it's okay, what's the evidence for those things? There have been a number of studies, uh, and fortunately there are several systematic reviews, which is always helpful. It makes it very easy. Someone's done all the busy work of tracking down all of the clinical studies and summarizing it. Uh, I also look to see if there's any been any studies since those uh, systematic reviews. And then, you know, I, you know, again, I wrote about it this week responding to Joe Rogan. I updated my research. So here's the bottom line. Uh, if you break it down to those the, the more plausible and more common claims there, uh, this systematic review looking at cryotherapy for uh, recovery from exercise. A 2015 Cochrane systematic review basically said that the uh, insufficient evidence and that 
this requires more research. They updated the review in 2016. They actually got more negative in their conclusion. This is their conclusion. in two, So two, 2016, this is like hot off the presses. In summary, the body of evidence in this review does not support the hypothesis that whole body cryotherapy effectively reduces muscle soreness or, and or improves subjective recovery after exercise in physically active young men. There is no evidence of its use in women or elite athletes. It's also important to note that the lack of evidence on adverse events means that one cannot be confident this, that this exposure to extreme cold air in either the short or long term is without potential harms. So we don't have safety data. The, the clinical data for doesn't show effectiveness, and it's but it's fairly limited. Now, I'm not saying this is the bottom line or this is the, the final word. Rather, this is the evidence so far is preliminary. Most of the studies are of low methodological rigor. They tend to be mixed, but, you know, they're meaning some positive, some negative, but nowhere near the threshold where we would say there's, you know, sufficient clinical evidence of effectiveness. For arthritis, the evidence is actually a little bit better, but still very preliminary. A 2014 systematic review found that they, they concluded cryotherapy should be included in rheumatoid arthritis therapeutic strategies as an adjunct therapy, meaning in addition to proven therapies. Uh, however, techniques and protocols should be more precisely defined within, in randomized controls trials with stronger methodology. In other words, this, the evidence is preliminary but encouraging. We need to do actually rigorous trials to, to know. There's only six studies included in that, so that's not very much. Uh, there was a, there was a 2015 study published since that systematic review. However, they found that this was a traditional rehabilitation versus you know adding whole body cryotherapy. They found no difference between the two groups. And then another 2015 study was a double blind placebo controlled design, and they used sham cryotherapy where they you know the subjects went into a chamber that was at minus five degrees celsius so that it was very cold but just wasn't as cold as the the full whole body cryotherapy the treatment group there had minus 67 degrees celsius and they found no difference uh so this so the evidence there is looking for for arthritis is still not nearly enough to conclude that it works you know uh, some of the evidence is negative uh, it's preliminary at best. Now, what Rogan and Patrick did is that they again they did the typical things that apologists for therapies that are not yet proven do. Uh, in addition to saying that, well, you're not looking at the right research, they mainly focused on basic science research. Basic science research showing that all oh, the stuff happens when you're exposed to colds, right? Uh, your your histamine levels go down and your other inflammatory markers go down and collagen goes up or whatever it's like all right that's all fine i'm not i never said it's not plausible or that it, i never even said it doesn't work i didn't say either of those things all i said is you can't extrapolate from basic science research to make clinical claims you just can't do that and, and that's not my role that's that's science right that's generally accepted the reason for that you know we have a long history of trying to do just that of making clinical claims based upon or clinical hypotheses based upon what we see happening at a basic science level, uh, and you can't, you just can't do it. The body's way too complicated. There are all kinds of reasons why something interesting happening uh, in animal research or in a petri dish or just when you're looking at biomarkers, why that won't necessarily simplistically translate to a clinical benefit. One is that it's interacting with a whole bunch of other stuff in the body. So you don't know what the net effect is. You always have to see what the net effect is. There could be compensatory mechanisms. Uh, the magnitude of the effect could be negligible. 
could be true, but insignificant clinically. So unless the only way to know if those factors are are applicable or not is to do clinical studies. You have to do the clinical research. That and only then do you know. And most of the the hypotheses that we generate from even very plausible, very compelling sounding basic science, most of them don't work. Most of them do not pan out. Yeah, you know, the, did you guys see the Frontline episode uh, recently, maybe a month or two ago, about supplements? I think that they illustrated this really well yeah. because they talked about how a lot of the fundamental ideas behind supplements come from sound basic research. Yeah. That this kind of compound has this kind of effect. But once you put it in a pill and you swallow it, does it still do what it did in a Petri dish or what it did in a mouse? And it seems like the outcome, at least with the vast majority of supplements, is no. Yeah, with the vast majority. That's right. Mm-hmm. Then Dr. Patrick you know, did an amazing thing. She said, oh, like, you don't need double-blind placebo-controlled trials to know if these things work or not. And she said, how are you going to do, how are you going to double-blind exposure to cold? People know if they're being exposed to cold or not. So clearly, she was not familiar with the clinical research because, as I said, there was a study that did just that, that did sham cryotherapy with cold but not that cold exposure. You could have essentially look for a dose-response curve. Does it does it matter what temperature you put it at? You know, because does it really feel that different if you're in like negative ten than if you're in negative fifty? Like, do you think we ha- we must have a threshold where it just all feels yeah, it's cold. damn cold, right? And you, yeah, may not, exactly. you may not be able to tell the difference. And they don't know what the therapeutic target is. They don't know what the if they're getting if that temperature that they're being exposed to is supposed to have a treatment effect or not. Right, so that's a pretty reasonable control. May not be perfect, but that's at least better than no control at all. And you know, the one study where they tried to control with sham uh, cryotherapy did showed no difference between the the treatment and the sham. So this is how clinical trials evolve, right? People figure things out, like how are we going to control for this? Even if it's impossible to control for something, that doesn't mean that your uncontrolled data is magically valid, right? All your that's just special pleading. All you're saying is why you don't have good data. That doesn't make the bad data that you have more reliable. It just means we can't really know. But in this case, I don't even buy it. I think she's wrong. I think she's the logic's invalid and she's factually incorrect because you can have sham cryotherapy. It's it's already been done. So that was an incredibly naive statement on her part. Uh, and again, she sounds like a basic scientist who has no idea about clinical research which I've encountered many times before. You know, that's that's typical. Again, I don't pretend to be an expert in basic science research, and they shouldn't pretend to be experts in clinical research. What's interesting is that Rogan said, I didn't do my research, but he did not contradict anything that I said. He didn't say, here is clinical research that shows that he's wrong. Here is clinical research that Dr. Novella ignored. All he said was anecdotes, basic science, and closed-minded that was the, basically the claims. It has nothing to do with be open or closed-minded. You can't extrapolate from basic science. Anecdotes are completely unreliable. We know that. Uh, the only real way to know if this works or not is with the clinical research, and the clinical research is nowhere even close to the threshold of being able to conclude that this is a safe and effective treatment for any of the things for which it's being used. It may, it may turn out to be effective. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm not saying it's implausible, just that it's not currently proven. So that's really kind of the takeaway that you got from looking through all of the research is that it may work, it may not, but 
there's just not enough evidence to support the idea that it has a significant effect for yeah. you to be satisfied enough to like walk into a cryotherapy chamber. Uh, you know, I'm a physician. My threshold is, am I going to tell my patients to do this, right? Am I yeah. going to prescribe it to my patients? No way. This is nowhere near that. We don't even know that it's safe. Uh, we don't know that it's worth the money. It's interesting. I, I think about like, quote, spa treatments, yeah. right? Because talking about this as a spa treatment or talking about this as a physical therapy treatment, those are two completely different uses. Obviously, I would think that if I had some sort of a horrible accident and then I was going to get physical therapy, I would expect that the physicians who are in charge right. would be using these kinds of stringent cutoffs. If I go to a spa, and we've talked about this before, this idea of like spa acupressure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things like that. This spa, like whatever. reflexology. Exactly, <laughs> reflexology. So I just went to a spa earlier today because it's been a crazy week in New York and I had some time before I could check into my hotel. And I got a great foot massage and ah. I got a really good massage. Heaven. And of course, it was, you know, an Asian foot massage place. And so it, they called it reflexology. And I'm sure that they were claiming that the toxins were being sucked out of my feet or that rubbing this one part of my foot, I don't know, like made my eyes feel better. But the truth of the matter is, it feels good. And it makes me wonder sometimes, is there evidence, for example, that therapeutic massage, you know, that having a Swedish massage has a positive benefit? Or is it one of those things where the anecdote is enough for me to pay $100 just to feel good after? Yeah, I've written about that too. The idea that essentially mm. people are repackaging certain very basic things like relaxation and massage, yeah, right, and exercise, you know, and they're repackaging it with woo, with the surrounding woo. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, that's, a, you know, massages feel good and they're relaxing and you know, that's fine. And I have no problem with getting a massage because it feels good and you can relax. When you throw the term therapeutic on top of it, though, or and then you start to attach specific claims like detox or whatever, you're crossing a line. Hmm. And it's all for marketing. It's all bullshit. It's not none of it is evidence based. You know, you get to the question I think that you're getting to is what's the harm of that? It's like, well, you know, that's uh, it's a relative thing. I think that endorsing pseudoscience does have downstream harm. Yeah, it's one of those things where I see people writing in. I don't know. I don't know if you could say that this is analogous, but it's funny when I see people writing in and they say, oh, my favorite brand of pickles now says that it's non-GMO. I, I don't know. even want to buy it anymore. I know. But it's I know. like, but I really like those pickles. What do I do? And I struggle with, with that. Yeah. yeah, it's like I struggle with that because... It, it is pseudoscience, but I don't actually believe that any of the claims they're making are true. It just feels good, which is why I'm willing to pay for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, I, and you know, but the problem I have is that now you're, in, you're lending your money to that marketing strategy and you're reinforcing it. But it's hard. It's hard to find pseudoscience-free stuff in certain contexts, you know? Like, oh, totally. Try to find yoga. a pseudoscience-free massage. I dare you. you know? It's Exactly. But yeah. I still want my massage. Or we, I used to actually have a friend who did yoga, and we called it atheist yoga because it was so rare yeah, to find somebody who exactly. would teach a yoga class and not talk about your chakras opening up. But right. I'm like, I know yoga feels good. I, I know that I'm getting a really good stretch. I'm getting good exercise when I'm doing it. It does have positive benefits. It has nothing to do with my chi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you exactly. know? We have to is, fight the tough. power, Kara. We got to fight back. Yeah. <laughs> it's so tough to be, because you're right. It's it's almost like, where's the availability? When yeah. the grocery store is overwhelmed with things that say non-GMO for marketing purposes, and you can't get the non-non-GMO version, it sucks. 
It sucks. I agree. One last thing before we move on, because uh, a lot, everyone pretty much is emailing us saying, oh, it'd be great if Steve Novella could be on the Joe Rogan show or he could be on our show. So I have to say, and I usually don't do this, but he called me out on his show. So I think it's all fair game now is we reached out to Joe Rogan and we I also invited him onto the SGU to talk about this, to have a nice, polite conversation about it. And he declined. So he is the one who's refusing to talk about this with me. And which, you know, interpret that as you will. But we don't don't ask me to invite him on the show. I've already done that. Well, Steve, you forgot the most important point. What's that, Jay? This is all Kara's fault. It is all Kara's <laughs> <laughs> Kara, we can edit that out if you want. No, I don't care. It's funny, though. It's, you know, it is. It's funny, too. I think it actually opens up an important conversation, which is finding yourself sometimes in the middle of and Everybody can relate to this. I know that all of the rogues right now can relate to it. And I know that everybody listening can relate to this. I famously um, have an ex-boyfriend and sometimes I talk about it, sometimes I don't. But you can Google my name and see that I dated Bill Maher, who I care about immensely and we have very good relationship. But he advocates for a lot of anti-science and a lot of woo that really affects me deeply. And that was at an actual issue in our relationship. And it's difficult sometimes when you find yourself in a position where you're like, well, I'm not going to only surround myself with people who think exactly like I do. And I'm not going to only be friends with people if they have the same skeptical bar as I do. But these people have these beliefs or these sacred cows or even these differences in understanding or opinion. And I still immensely respect them. I still immensely care for them. But there are those certain conversations that are just sometimes contentious regardless of mm-hmm. how much you try to approach them in like a calm and rational way people get emotional bo- emotional about things that they're passionate about yeah it's odd though though getting emotional about cryotherapy because you don't agree with what the literature says it's like it's not even that he's disagreeing with me i'm just echoing i mean these are you know experts and researchers who did a systematic review i'm just reading their conclusion I didn't yeah. do the systematic review. They did. I'm just reading their conclusion. That's and I it. Mean, I, I think I was speaking more specifically about Bill yeah. and, and some but, of the science stuff. But, but even, you know, and different applies. types of emotion, you know, can be uh, interpreted different ways. But it's true, you know, anytime that somebody talks about something passionately or they advocate for something, whether they have a financial interest in it or not, just having a passionate um, interest in it. When you push back against that a little bit, it is uh, it is quite rare and quite refreshing when somebody does have no emotion yeah. in their response because it's it, that's the exception, not the rule, yeah. unfortunately. I agree. All right, Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy. Last week, I played this sound. And um, man, did I get a lot of emails. Nobody got it right, but I got a huge amount of crazy guesses. And when I say crazy, I mean crazy. Uh, A lot of people said that it is derivative of Star Wars. Somebody thought it was um, lightsabers slowed down. Uh, Somebody thought it was the uh, Imperial March slowed down. Somebody wrote me something about people fighting with lightsabers and having sex with each other. That clearly is not the answer. Somebody guessed a floppy drive. Lots of lots of interesting things by that noise. 
However, none of those were correct. Thank you very much for the emails, and some of them were extraordinarily entertaining. But I will tell you this. I'll give you a hint. It is a celestial body. The sun? It's the sun. Uh, oh, yeah. that was quick. <laughs> yeah, it's the sun, definitely. <laughs> very cool. Um, I was watching a video of the sun. Um, I've been teaching my son about the sun. So I was watching a video about it, and I heard a few seconds of um, – of the, like the radiation or ra- radio waves that are generated by the sun. And I did some research and I found a really cool sound file. And that's the background noise that the sun is just pumping out in- into the universe. Yeah. Um, very cool. Suns are very remarkable things and uh, they're, they're really interesting to read details about. So this week's Noisy. So what was that? Oh what the gosh. hell was that sound? Hmm. Some of you, uh, my hint is some of you absolutely have heard that sound before. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. <laughs> so guys, please continue to send me in your awesome guesses. Please send me your awesome noises that you heard this week or recently. I'd love to get some uh, fresh ideas. Send everything to WTN at the dot. Or take it away, Kara. All right, Kara, what's the word? The word today is sialism. You guys like that? Sialism? Yeah, sialism. Sialism. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, uh, it, it again doesn't sound how it looks like it should sound because it looks like it should be skialism or skialism because it's SC, but it's pronounced sialism. Like skyance. Yes, like skyance. And <laughs> they have the same root. It is a superficial show of knowledge or learning or the practice Ooh. of opinionating on subjects of which one only has superficial knowledge, often displayed as a pretentious showing of scholarship. A person displaying sialism is a sialist. Now, this was submitted by Chris from Orlando, Florida, a listener of the show, and he said, quote, also see David Avocado Wolf, (laughs) Vanny Hari, Deepak Chopra, Mike Adams. You get the idea. Oh, my God. That's great. What a great (laughs) word. I'm so going to use that. Isn't it good? Yeah. It's so, I feel like there's so many times in my life when I could have been like, ugh, what a stylist. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and That's I didn't get to say it. Exactly. So here is the etymology of the word. It comes from the late Latin sciolus, which means smatterer or pretender of knowledge. Its root is the Latin sias, meaning knowing, and that itself comes from the verb sire, that's how I'm going to pronounce it, which means to know. So when yes. you think about that, it's spelled S-C-I-R-E, Sire. It's also the source of many other words like science, prescience, conscience. Science fiction. Also science fiction, which is just <laughs> the word science and then the word fiction. And guys, its first known usage was in the first decade of the 17th century. So it's quite an old word. We should bring it back. It's quite rare in, in literature. So I say we give it a resurgence. All right, we're going to do a couple of emails. These are both corrections. One for me, one for you, Bob. We'll start with mine. Last week, I talked about the Valsalva maneuver, and lots of people wrote in. Go back two weeks. We talked about uh, my time in a flight simulator, and we had an email about that and about my use of the word of the term Valsalva maneuver. I explained that, you know, within the field of medicine, the Valsalva maneuver refers to bearing down to increase intrathoracic pressure. Uh, the pilot who had wrote in 
use the term to refer to blowing out your nose to increase to, to basically equalize the pressure in your middle ear. Uh, I said, okay, that yeah, that may be the the way it's being used in aviation, but in the medical field, it means in, in, increasing intrathoracic pressure. Well, turns out that the story is a lot more complicated than that. That was the definition I had learned, and I I did do a quick literature search just to check my understanding, and that's the only definition that I encountered. I obviously didn't do enough research, and I didn't look specifically at the history of the use of the term because I didn't think it was relevant. It just didn't occur to me. But now I have, and in re- partly in response to to specific feedback from listeners, but also it's like okay, I have to like now do a deep dive on the whole history of the Valsalva maneuver term, and it's very interesting. So the term refers to a uh, an Italian anatomist, Antonio Maria Valsalva, uh, who was born in 1666, 1666, and he uh, was interested in the anatomy of the the middle ear and the head. And he actually described in one writing, you know, it was only one treatise of his, although it was published several times in, in a text. He had this hypothesis that there was a connection between the middle ear and the cranium, right? And the brain. And he thought that if you held your nose and blew outward, not only could you use that to blow air through your middle ear, through the eustachian tube, uh, and in fact, uh, that he described that as a way of like clearing the pus from an abscess in your ear. You could blow in your nose and you would blow the pus out your ear, which would work. But he thought you could also do that to blow pus and contaminants out of a head wound because of... Yes. <laughs> turns out that that's not true. That hypothesis of his was incorrect. But that's what he was writing about. So he was writing about increasing the pressure in the middle ear. There are historical references to blowing against your pinched nose to, to equalize the pressure in your ear or to, you know, to blow air into your, in your middle ear going back into ancient times. So it was not new to Valsalva. Then in the middle of the 19th century, two things happened. One was the first reference to blowing out your nose and attributing that, you know, blowing, you know, against the pinched nose to increase the pressure in your middle ear to equalize the pressure. That was the first reference of that maneuver, that technique, to Valsalva. It's still unclear why that connection was made since it was not new or unique to him, but that connection was made. It was also the first time that uh, physicians, physiologists were writing about the technique of increasing intrathoracic pressure as a way of uh, examining the vascular system, the, the effects of that change in pressure on the blood flow. Then we have to jump forward further to the middle of the 20th century, which is a lot later than I would have thought, was the first time that the Valsalva maneuver, that term, was used to refer to increasing intrathoracic pressure. And that was just incorrectly attributed to Valsalva. But interestingly, that became the dominant definition. So uh, I read multiple papers. One paper by Albert Mudry, I'll, we could link to it, says Valsalva maneuver, a confusing dichotomatic misnomer, uh, which I agree. It's confusing. It has two meanings and it's a misnomer. He also tracked like through a certain medical dictionary, the definition of the term. And interestingly, it started out as increasing middle ear pressure, then both middle ear and intrathoracic, then only intrathoracic, like that, it actually migrated completely over to increasing intrathoracic pressure. 
and then by the late 1980s, back again to both. When I looked it up, some dictionaries give only the intrathoracic definition. And again, when I did a literature search, that was the only one that I encountered. Some medical dictionaries have both definitions now. So it's hard to say now what is quote-unquote correct. It's complicated, but I think both definitions are now given and used, uh, although I think that for non-otologists, the uh, intrathoracic definition is the most prevalent within the medical field, uh, but apparently within scuba diving and aviation, the inner ear definition is the only one that they use or know, and they're not aware of this alternate medical definition. It's totally confusing now because there's these two <laughs> definitions that none of which really to go back to Valsalva, you know. What's the, an otologist? The ear doctor. Uh, the author actually recommends that we come, we invent some other term to refer to increasing intrathoracic pressure because it's just not a Valsalva maneuver. You know, basically exhaling into closed glottis. So, because they said that's a false eponymous attribution. You're just making eponymous? words up now. Yeah, what is eponymous? Eponymous is when something is named after a person. Yeah. Oh. So what's a hippopotamus? <laughs> right. Named after hippo. So like, yeah, the Valsalva maneuver is eponymous to Valsalva. All right, so uh, now we all agree that everything's everybody's okay, right? And that everybody is equally right and wrong. So both definitions, <laughs> we have to say that both definitions are right, although di- with different frequencies in different contexts. If you're in the medical field, you probably will think of intrathoracic pressure. If you're a scuba diver or in aviation, you will think only of middle ear pressure. Both have problematic connections to actually to the history and back to Valsalva, but the inner ear pressure probably has a more of a direct connection. The intrathoracic pressure was just a complete misnomer, uh, mm. but interestingly became dominant in the medical field. Interesting so I, history. So it's, it's, this happens often in science where ter, you know scientific terms through some complicated historical you know whatever becomes confusing or they're complete misnomers they're or they're completely misleading uh but but the wrong terms come to dominate and then you know once you have terms being used in the technical literature that creates a lot of inertia you know it's hard to displace them so bob we have a, we had other emails about the definition of a non-newtonian fluid tell us oh, about that yeah i screwed it man you got this so wrong I think actually Bob asked me and I got it wrong. You guys are being so mean to Bob. Yeah, Bob. What the hell? (laughs) Yeah, Bob. Why'd you ask me a question I didn't know the answer to? Yeah, he's supposed (laughs) to know better, Carol. Here's here's reality. Here's what happened. Carol's talking about thixotropy or thixotrophy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, What do we agree on the the pronunciation? Thixotropy. But it's with a P. It's thixotropy, not thixotrophy. Okay. okay. P, not PH. all right, so we're talking about thixotropy and how yes. basically it's it's a it's a fluid that that thins with agitation, like ketchup, for example. So, and very cool word. So, as she was saying that, I was thinking of you know when we were young and we would mess around with cornstarch cornstarch and water, also called oobleck or ooze. 
Um, or goo yuck. Goo yuck. Oh, yes. And <laughs> I remember it was really cool because if you if you squeezed it, it would actually harden. And I've I subsequently found <laughs> so out that that's Just that, like that a was, lot of other things, Bob. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah, baby. Oh, um, no, no. So no, I've, no. I've, always, I've known – we've known for a while. I've, I've always known that that was a non-Newtonian fluid. So this – so – so substances like ketchup seem to me to be the opposite of it. So I asked about it, and I guess we weren't really sure. But so it turns out, though, a few people pointed out that actually ketchup and other similar fluids, thixotropic, yeah, thixotropic fluids, are also non-Newtonian. You know, whether uh, viscosity increases or decreases with the rate of shear strain, it doesn't matter. It's it's not Newtonian, so therefore it's non-Newtonian. So it doesn't doesn't really uh, matter. So I just wanted to clear that up, and uh, it's interesting and uh, and. And also, uh, uh, the cornstarch and water oobleck stuff is also a dilettante fluid, which specifically refers to uh, viscosity increasing with the rate of shear strain. Uh, which is a subset of non-Newtonian. Yeah, so thixotropic yes. and dilettante are opposites, all under the umbrella of non-Newtonians. You think it's dilatant? Dilatant? Because dilettante, dilettante is, you know, means something else. Because <laughs> yeah, like di- it looks like, like dilate, except dilatant. The glavin. Dilatant. Oh, cool. Okay. Because, of course, dilettante is spelled completely differently. It's like French. Yeah, it is French. Yeah. But f- phonetically, it certainly seems like it could be dilatant. Yeah, dilatant. Dilatant. Excellent. I feel, I feel yep. a lot better now. Thank you. That makes so much more sense. <laughs> Well, everyone, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. So, guys, I guess it's no secret that we're huge fans of The Great Courses, and we've been excited for quite a while about their new video learning service, The Great Courses Plus. With Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series on a variety of subjects like science, history, photography, and so much more. It's an unending list of awesomeness. Guys, we have a great offer because you listen to the SGU and because you love Steve, my brother, you can listen to Steve's course, Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, and hundreds of other courses that they have for free. Your Deceptive Mind is basically Steve telling you what skepticism is. Right, Steve? In a nutshell, it's yeah, it basically covers the beginning to the end of all the skeptical topics that we talk about, such as heuristics, memory, perception, cognitive biases, science versus pseudoscience, denialism. It's all there. So, guys, with the great courses, plus you can watch uh, tons of different lectures anytime, you know, from any device that you have, of course, your TV, your PC, your phone, anything. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering you a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Your Deceptive Mind, which is a $235 value for free when you use our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Well, we are joined now by Bruce Hood. Bruce, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> I always like talking to you, blokes. This is, this is always crazy to do this on a podcast with, with not only just brothers, but you know, three of you. It's, kind of, anyway, I'm, <laughs> it's crazy uh, time. It's crazy. <laughs> so, Bruce, you are, for our audience, you're an experimental psychologist working at Bristol University. Yeah. And you're an author of a, a couple of books. We wanted to have you on the show this week to talk about your most recent book, although it came out in 2014, The mm-hmm. Domesticated Brain. 
There was an article about it recently which brought it to our attention. And rather than just talk about it, we said, why don't we just have Bruce on the show to talk about it, about his own book? <laughs> so tell us about the book itself. We'll start with that. Tell us what the premise is and what you talk about. So this, sure, way, sure. Bruce, this book is not about your wife getting you into shape, right? <laughs> well, that's what most people think when they hear the word domestication. They think it's all to do with a kind of domestic bliss. And uh, No, it actually is interesting because the, the, the concept of domestication or the process of domestication has a much uh, earlier and more prestigious origin. It actually features very heavily in Darwin's uh, Origin of Species because a lot of his arguments uh, were based not only on collecting data from his trips uh, to the Galapagos Islands, but by uh, his discussions with um, animal breeders who were domesticating various species, and so he, uh, he, you know, he learned about the way that they selectively bred uh, animals together that had attributes that they wanted to propagate, and this is how they shaped uh, the individual animals, uh, the, the phenotype. Uh, and of course, that gave him the insight though that maybe you know we've been chained because of, of the selection process, not by any sort of cosmic you know breeder but by the natural environment changing so so domestication is actually a process which uh, is 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 well recognized in in biology but i i came up with the title because uh i'd been asked to write a book for the general public which explained uh social development which is one of my areas of interest in humans and uh i was trying to figure a way of really hooking the reader in right at the very beginning and then i came across this rather bizarre factoid that um, according to the uh, fossil record, around about 20,000 years ago, there was a significant reduction in the size of the skulls. And this was weird because, you know, brains have been getting larger over the course of hominid evolution for hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. And so why would it suddenly undergo this sort of significant reduction? And it, it is quite significant. It's about uh, 15%, which is about the size of a tennis ball. And, and so there were lots of sort of explanations which were to do with climate change and change in diets and, and maybe a population explosion. Uh, but then I discovered this process of, of domestication. Uh, and it turns out that when you domesticate wild animals, uh, there's a lot of changes which go in their phenotype. But one of the changes which is found common to all domesticated animals is a reduction in brain size by about 15%. So I thought, haha, this is really interesting. Maybe something happened in our social environment 15, uh, sorry, 20,000 years ago, um, which could have been partly responsible for this. Now, I don't have any conclusion or any sort of, you know, smoking gun here, but I just thought it was very provocative that domestication creates this sort of strange blip, as it were, in brain development. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and I know in the book you explore other hypotheses for why mm. our brains could be decreasing. Like, for example, the Ice Age, most recent glacial period ended 20,000 years ago. That's right. And with the warmer temperatures, we didn't need as much bulk yeah. And that, and brain size definitely correlates with body size. But yeah. that doesn't quite account for it though, does it? No, because there's been more than, um, there's been more than one ice age. And, um, this is not my area of expertise, but, but from the paleontologists who I, I rely on their expertise, um, this has been dismissed because the, you don't find other corresponding, uh, dips in the, in the fossil record. Um, it's not clear if that's just a statistical issue because you've got many more data points with more recent skulls, obviously. But the, the, the domestication uh, hypothesis I became fascinated with because of the work of Dmitry Believ, who was this geneticist working in Stalin's Russia 
And Stalin was very anti uh, any work on genetics. So he took himself off to uh, Siberia to the uh, fur farms where they were trapping animals. And one of the species that they were trapping was the Siberian fox, which is uh, which had previously been totally wild, never domesticated. So what Believ did was that he uh, selectively bred together uh, animals which were the most docile. Uh, so he was choosing their behavioral features and then selecting on the basis of that. And what he discovered within about 12 generations, as little as that, he had completely changed the animal into a domesticated you know, species. So it was just almost behaving like a, like a puppy dog. And of course, dogs are domesticated wolves. Uh, and so they, when you do this process of selecting, uh, for this particular type of trait, uh, you can produce a different type of animal. And, and, and lo and behold, their brains also shrink by about 15%. So the mechanism by which, by which that might happen, it's still a bit speculative, but it might be that you're selecting against testosterone. Which has properties of metabolic properties, which lead to larger brains, and you know, that's one of the reasons that males are bigger and their brains are bigger. And there's some supporting evidence of that, for, because we know that people who are undergoing um, gender reassignments, if you put them under courses of of various hormones, you can also get changes in, in brain volume, as it were. But somehow this got picked up by the papers, and this became, oh my God, all our brains are shrinking, or <laughs> we're becoming more dumber, and 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 that's why we're uh, you know we're so so docile and domesticated. What connection does that actually have, though, to intelligence? I mean, it's not just the brain is bigger because of testosterone, but there's nothing else happening in the brain, right? Like, what what do you lose when you lose that brain mass? Well, who knows? I mean, the point is, it's not the size that matters. It's what you do with it. And I suppose that... Uh, well, that applies to many things. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that uh, that was actually something that a lot of the journalists got really... They picked up these, assumed that smaller brains mean dumbing down. But actually, that's not a very good way of thinking about it at all. Uh, it's what our, our intelligence has been collectively changing with each generation because unlike any other animal, we have the capacity to uh, create and pass on new information and, and we learn and we have this particularly long childhood, the longest childhood of any animal on the planet proportionally to our age. And so why, why do we have such long childhoods? Well, I think it's, it's because uh, we're accumulating um, vast amounts of information that's being passed on. So intelligence, uh, it's difficult to know. Um, you know, it, we, we don't really, we can only speculate uh, and it's very difficult to factor out all the knowledge that's passed on with more recent uh, evolution. But um, in general, the brains were getting bigger, and this is known as the, the social brain hypothesis. So if you look at the evolution of animals which live in social groups, those which are, live in the largest groups tend to have bigger brains. So bigger brains, to some extent, were equated with social intelligence, uh, which made this blip around 20,000 years ago all the more sort of surprising because, I mean, we've been social for, you know, millions of years as hominids, but why would it suddenly start to dip at 20,000 years ago? Well, maybe if you're selecting against aggression, if you're selecting for more docile uh, people who can live in harmony and cooperation, then maybe that's the explanation. That's not ruling out the, um, the other factors such as, as climate change and population densities, which are probably contributing to that as well. Because, of course, we, we made a transition from hunter-gatherers around that time to settling into communities. And very soon afterwards, we developed develop agriculture as well. So there were a lot of factors in the mix. But I decided to focus on the, the story of Believ and the foxes and domestication, just to point out that actually, uh, if you consider our childhoods, a lot of what we do as children is not just acquire information, but we also have to learn how to become socially acceptable. So 
uh, a lot of child is preoccupied with learning the rules of learning how to behave. And actually, you know, that's what we tell our kids all the time, behave yourself. <laughs> so it's a kind of process of which is very much uh, biased towards social development. The other question is, you know, can our brains decrease by 10 to 15% without there necessarily being any loss of overall intelligence? I know it's really hard to define, mm. you know, intelligence. Well, yeah. but, and I know there are hypotheses that, you know, the brain can shrink without losing intelligence because mm. it just becomes more efficient, essentially. Well, that's right. Well, we know that from surgical interventions, of course, various, and this you probably know as a medic, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable the degree of recovery and plasticity, even in adult brains. It's better in the younger brain, but even people undergo head injuries, uh, not entirely. I mean, there's, 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 it's not always the case that they can get full recovery, but there is a remarkable degree of recovery. So the brain has this capacity to reorganize itself uh, to, uh, re, you know, re purpose various other areas to take over jobs which have been lost so so i i i i'm always hesitant to draw uh, direct connections between structure and function uh, when it comes to you know what brains do uh, we have to be careful against that it, it leads to a lot of naive assumptions well yeah wasn't there in the news recently um they they compared uh, bird brains to actually some some uh some apes or chimps uh, yeah. And they, and the conclusion was that even though it's vastly smaller, it is organized in, in a, you know, in a very different way. And so you can achieve, you know, pretty impressive intelligence, uh, with a completely different organization, even, even though it's much smaller. Yeah, well, of course, um, the corvids, you know, that's the crows and those magpies, um, they're, they're really intelligent. They're sometimes called the feathered apes because they pass mm. levels of IQ, which are equivalent to what primates do. Uh, I would just point out again, of course, that corvids are also very similar to, to humans in the sense that they pair bond and have the extraordinarily long, uh, childhoods as well as fledglings so birds which spend a long period of time being reared by their parents who typically have to pair bond because the the cost of looking after them is so expensive they're the ones which end up being the smartest birds so there's something about childhood length of childhood and intelligence which i think is uh, not a coincidence also there is evidence that humans have been getting more intelligent yeah the flynn effect yeah there's a there's a mm. flynn effect which has been over the last about century, which of course could be entirely cultural, doesn't necessarily have to be biological, but also geneticists have identified genes that are associated with with higher intelligence that have been increasing in frequency over mm. maybe the last thousand years. So that's interesting. Yeah, so I think over historical time, it's possible that humans are are getting smarter, despite the fact that we're our brains are have shrunk mm. because of domestication. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the issue of intelligence is always fraught with problems because basically, you know, if a species is still around, then it's, then it's as intelligent as it needs to be. I mean, that's what adaptations are, that they fit with the environment. Uh, and of course, you know, we are changing our environments, but we're very different to every, every other animal because you know, were literally shaping uh, and changing the, the sorts of problems of each generation to the next. Um, but I think it's very difficult to factor out the amount of accumulated knowledge because unless you raise a kid in a bubble, which we just simply can't do those experiments, it's very difficult to know exactly you know how you can do those comparisons. And the Flynn effect that you you talk about is a very real effect that the IQ is going up. You know, uh, it's every 15 years it goes up a couple of points or so. So uh, that is that's um, you know that's still controversial. Is that to do with diet? Is it to do with these genes that you talk about? It's, it's not really clear yet. We don't know. All right, Bruce. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, guys, and uh, hopefully I'll see you next year. Yep. See you soon. Thanks, Bruce. Bye. Jay, before we move on to science or fiction, tell us about Nexus this year. Nexus is a conference that we've been running for eight years, 
Nexus stands for Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. Uh, this year, we're having Nexus on May 12th to May 15th, 2016. That is going to be held in New York City at FIT, which is the Fa- Fashion Institute of Technology. We've been there for, you know, how many years now, Steve? Four years, five yeah, years? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we know the facility really really well. It's wonderful. It's in a great neighborhood. Uh, the hotels are great. And But much more importantly, we have some f- freaking phenomenal speakers coming this year. We have Richard Wiseman coming in to give a keynote. We have Bill Nye again coming. Bill will be joining us for the Skeptical Extravaganza, which is our big variety show that the SGU does on Friday night. And Kara will be joining us for the first time. Yay! Yeah, we're psyched, Kara. I can't wait to do this show with you because it's just a ridiculous amount of fun. It, I'm so excited. Um, it's crazy fun. We do these throwdowns. Where They're the best. George will give us a topic, and two of us have uh, to debate that topic. Oh God! And like you hear it for no. the first time, like all right, Kara, you you have this position, go. And it's like <laughs> lightsabers versus blasters. Kara, your lightsabers, go. Oh God! <laughs> Don't put me against Kid J. <laughs> Steve is actually amazing at it. Like Steve could create an argument. Like one of Steve's, Steve had to argue for pencils over pens or something. <laughs> Steve like it was, Steve made it very interesting. Like about pencils. What the hell? Is it so, okay to just like make shit up? Because I'm really good at that. But you've got to convince would, the audience. Yeah, yeah. you'll be ca- you might be called up. on it though. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> might be called on it. It's debate. But, it's a it's a real debate. You know, oh, it is. Gosh. But charisma has a lot to do with you know it's how true. well you stylize your answer has an impact on it. Anyway, go to nexus.org. That is N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G. Sign up. You could sign up for one day, the whole thing, a workshop. Just come for the Friday night show. Come see George do his Broad Street score on Thursday night. Come see Baba Brinkman do some skeptical rapping on Sunday night. There's a private SGU show. There's lots of hanging out. You're in New York City, so that means there's awesome pizza. Come on down to the show. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jake. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And you know what? You all at home can play along. <laughs> thank, thank you, Steve. You're welcome. I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. We got just three regular old news items this week. Okay. Item number one. A new study identifies a spinal cord pathway that, when stimulated, essentially turns off pain conduction to the brain, reducing pain to imperceptible. Item number two, scientists report that the Enhingatu native Amazonians indicate time of day by pointing to the location of the sun at that time, the first recorded instance of specific information being conveyed entirely by gesture in an auditory language. And item number three, scientists report that they have completely reversed osteoporosis in mice through a single injection of stem cells. Say what? (laughs) Kara, you always give it away. Talk first. You always talk first, but that's okay. (laughs) Bob, you haven't gone first in a while, Bob. Yeah, I went first last week. (laughs) Come mared. Um, Let's see. (laughs) Damn. I looked at a lot of stuff and none of this shit was there. Um, <laughs> all right. We got the p- spinal cord pathway. You stimulate this new pathway that apparently has uh, eluded detection for centuries, turns off pain <laughs> conduction in the brain. What? Uh, come on. That's just too damn good to be true. You know, I'm just, ugh. Uh, let's see. Next one, we got these Amazonians. 
They indicate the time of day by pointing to the location of the sun at that time. The first... What? <laughs> um, let's see. The other one is completely reversing osteoporosis. I mean, that's pretty too good to be true, too. You know? Nothing is, like, leaping out that says... Well, maybe number, the first one is. But, okay. But I got two here that are, like, too good. And one that's just weird. So maybe I should go with the <laughs> anomaly. Sometimes you got to do this. Yeah, what the hell? I'm going to say the, the stupid time one is fiction. Okay, Jay. The stupid time one. <laughs> All right. So this is – I'm probably going to sound ridiculous to Steve because Steve is a neurologist and I'm going to be talking about – I'm going to be riffing about the spinal cord and the brain and begin. Okay. So first I know that, that all, pra- all pain exists in the brain. So they're saying here, though, that there's a spinal cord pathway that when you stimulate it, it turns off pain conduction to the brain, which means it's it's stopping pain signals being sent to your brain. When stimulated, a pathway that when stimulated, what? That seems like the opposite. You'd want to, like, shock it to, to the point where it doesn't do anything, right? That's that's what I thought that, um like, pain medication blocks the signals being sent because it just makes the, the nerves do nothing. Um, so that's weird. It's very strange. The second one about the Nigatu native. And Nigatu. These guys are awesome, by the way. Um, I don't know anything about them, but I love their name. <laughs> but they, all right, so they point to the sun to tell each other what time it was or is, right? Is that what you're saying, Steve? Yes. All right, so that makes sense. It was uh time. No, it was uh time. Okay, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. So I'm going to say that one is science. And this last one, science report that they completely reversed osteoporosis in mice uh, through a single injection of stem cells. Of course, it's the stem cell therapy, Bob, that wins the day. Oh, boy. I'm going to say, Steve, that all of neuroscience is crazy bullshit, including the one about turning off pain to the brain. Okay. Kara? Pathway that when stimulated turns off pain conduction. Well, we know that if we overstimulate certain pathways... Like that's why you, yeah, things happen. Yeah, you rub your elbow, you bump your elbow, you rub it, and that actually reduces the pain because you're overstimulating those oh. fibers. Oh, why did so, you say that? Shit. But I don't. But that. But a specific <laughs> pathway that when they stimulate. I mean, and people have the the packs that are implanted with chronic pain, so they'll stimulate them, and then they actually feel less pain. I don't know. It seems reasonable. What is but, there a this, max amount of pain you can feel? I don't know. Uh, some people don't feel any pain and they die young usually. Um, let's see. And he got to native Amazonians. I still don't understand this one. So I'm going to read it verbatim. Scientists report that the, and he got to native Amazonians indicate time of day by pointing to the location of the sun at that time. The first recorded instance of specific information being conveyed entirely by gesture in an auditory language. English is an auditory language, and if you ask me what time it is, and I hold up the number three, that is specific information. I think they're indicating that they don't have a word for it. It's just by gesture. Oh, I get it. Entirely by gesture. Which to me, that also makes no sense, because they don't have numbers? I'm losing my mind. That time, they don't calculate time in numbers, like every other culture of all time ever. Okay, and then scientists report that they have completely reversed osteoporosis in mice through a single injection of stem cells. I don't like that one because it uses too many words that, as a general rule, I think make something false. Completely through a single injection. I don't like it. That one, I feel like the language is too strong. And all of the other ones, report. Like in the first one, it was like essentially turns off pain conduction. I like that. This one, completely reversed osteoporosis. I don't buy it. 
I'm going to say you can't completely reverse osteoporosis with an oh, injection. Right. All right. I want to split. split. I want to split. I love it. I want to throw in just a couple, two things. The, the thing with the spinal cord pathway is that we're not we're not talking about the p- pathway for pain. This is a completely new pathway, so it's different than rubbing your elbow. It's not. De- well, there it's is, not dealing. There is not just one pathway for pain. There's no but, V pathway for pain. Yeah, but we know. I mean, my point is we know the pathway. It's not like, oh, we found the pathway. We know. How, we know what pathways there are. And This, this is would clearly be an inhibitory pathway. Yes. Right? There are and, inhibitory pathways in the nervous system that essentially then, decrease the function of and, some other pathway or something. Yes. And I'm the just saying one, that if that model is reasonable, I don't see why this wouldn't also be reasonable. And the other thing I wanted to say is that the, the <laughs> yeah. time, the time thing. You know what's really makes that stupid? So that's that's <laughs> it's like be that's the like truth. <laughs> that's like saying, "Where's my nose? It's right here." You point to your nose. If if somebody asks you what time it is, and I po- and I reply by pointing to the sun, does that mean they can't see the sun where that where they are two feet in front of you? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, Bob. Bob, no, it's pointing to where the sun sun at a different position in the sky than it currently is. Yeah, it's kind of like, when did you have breakfast? And then they point to the sky at what time it was when they had breakfast, where the sun would have been then. Yeah, that's that's another valid interpretation, isn't it? (laughs) Let's start with that one then, Bob, since you're... Let's go go with that one. Start with number two, scientists report. It makes sense now. It makes (laughs) sense. If you just worded it, you know, in a less ambiguous way, I would have totally understood it, you know, the third time. Bob, blame Steve. If you got off of your pompous soapbox, you would have slowed down enough to read Office. it and understand it. I did. Scientists See, report that the Enhingatu Native Amazonians indicate time of day by pointing to the location of the sun at that time. Totally unambiguous. The first recorded instance of specific information being conveyed entirely by gesture it in an auditory is language. ambiguous. Bob thinks this one is the fiction. Karen and Jay thinks this one is science. And this one is... Uh-huh. Science. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Of course, of course it is now that I know what the hell it is. <laughs> yeah, so they say, what's, you know, when did this happen? And they point to no, the sky. Th- there's no past tense here. Indicate the time of day by pointing to the location of the time at that time, when the, assuming when it, you asked. Yeah. I, I get it now. I get this next time. Be a little clear. That's all. Okay. Bob, <laughs> Bob, Bob, you could go take your ball and go home if you want. <laughs> I just realized this is me and the brothers today. (laughs) So they said that previously uh, with auditory – in other words, not sign language, right? Auditory language that uh, there's always a sound to convey meaning, that gestures may enhance the meaning, but it's always sort of a superficial enhancement. It's never the key core concept. This is the first instance – of the core concept being conveyed entirely by gesture in an auditory language. That's what they're saying. So, um. It's cool. Yeah. Okay. And it's Time interesting. Though. Now, Kara, they don't have clocks. They, so saying three doesn't, has no meaning to them. <laughs> Why don't they have clocks? The Mayans had clocks. But they don't have them. Uh, so. <laughs> but they have the sun and they have round objects. <laughs> They, I'm so they, they don't divide. They don't divide their day up into numbers. They just what say, would they do? Okay. Like they're you know when they're having a latte in the afternoon. How can they <laughs> you tell stop their friends it. to meet them? You yeah, they had they had it. water clocks, so they say fifteen hundred drips. <laughs> so my question is, what about time at night? Yeah, oh, the moon. Good point. Well, the moon that wouldn't really too complex. Yeah, that's very complicated. Yeah. 
Do, do they point to where the sun is underneath its course on the other side of the earth? Would they, oh, they just go to, do they even know just that? To sleep. Nothing happens at night. They go to sleep. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe it's just at night and that's it. That's oh, yeah. Maybe there's no electricity doing. there. Amazonian tribes, by the way, are fascinating. I almost did an entire science fiction just on them, but I'm not quite ready to do that. Um, there's Because there's so many I'll, I'll prep it. tribes like with that. interesting cultures and everything. Very fascinating. Okay, let's go back to number one. A new study identifies a spinal path- cord pathway that, when stimulated, essentially turns off pain conduction to the brain, reducing pain to imperceptible. Jay, you think this one is a fiction. Kara and Bob think, think this one is science. And this one is the fiction. I never was get I right? the neuroscience ones right. I think <laughs> that, I said that has any kind of scientific merit. <laughs> not really. <laughs> not really. So, Damn. yeah, this, this is interesting. So this is based on a real story that what the scientists were investigating was looking. Now, we do use, you know, spinal cord stimulators to reduce pain. It's mm-hmm. not like a specific pathway. It doesn't completely eliminate the pain. It just – the pain doesn't bother people as much when they use their mm-hmm. spinal cord stimulator. Um, so That's they were cool. investigating how this works. And what they found using fMRI – I didn't – again, this is one where I didn't want to make it the science because it's 10 subjects. It's fMRI. It's like hard to really hang your hat on this. But what they found was that the spinal cord stimulation, it doesn't block pain transmission to the brain, but it, it alters the brain's reaction to the pain signals. Specifically, it alters the interaction of different parts of the brain and the the bottom line of which is that it reduces the emotional response to the pain. Well, that's like isn't that very similar to nitrous oxide at a dentist? Because I, I remember reading. I mean, I didn't re- research this, but my understanding is that you basically you feel the pain, but you just don't give a crap about it. Yeah, opioids work that way. <laughs> so there are different pain pathways that uh, transmit pain to the brain, and different places in the brain that experience that pain. Basically, there are two systems. One system gives you localization, like it tells you my left pinky is hurting. It's very discriminating. The other system doesn't really localize very well, but it just goes to the limbic system and tells you the pain bothers you. This is emotionally upsetting to you. Oh, cool. If you block that pathway, then you feel the pain. But again, there's nothing about the sensation of pain itself that's negative. It's only negative because there are pathways in your brain that tell you that it's negative. In other words, that it it has a negative emotional reaction to the pain. So wait, so the people who, you know, this very rare subset of people who don't feel pain, is it that they don't actually have the experience of pain or they don't recognize the pain as painful? I think, I think what you're talking they about. They don't is, experience it. They, yeah, they don't yeah, feel Yeah, they don't pain. have any nociception, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. They gotcha. don't have a nociception. Okay, they don't have, yeah, they but, don't have um, sense nociception. If you get on a sort of a, a, a sweet spot dose of narcotics, uh, you know, where you don't stop breathing, but where it's a high, <laughs> a high enough dose, you can get to the point where you feel the pain, but it does not bother you. And that's why morphine is pretty common in yeah. like end of life situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get, you, you get the opposite of what pain does. You get euphoria. Mm. Uh, but of course, that resets your receptors, it downgrades them, so that Ooh, baseline good. becomes dysphoria. That's the problem with narcotics: is it you know downregulates those receptors that it's binding to. I hate when that happens. Yeah, it's a problem. Huge problem. It actually makes pain syndrome so much worse. 
almost impossible to control. That's why narcotics are great for short-term pain and for terminal pain, horrible for chronic long-term pain. Yeah, but that's how the brain responds to the sensation, not the transmission of it to the brain. And there's nothing that I know of that like that, like we could stimulate something and it completely eliminates the pain. That part I made up. Mm. All right. I thought it said essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he knows how to throw you. All of I'm this too means careful. that scientists report that they have completely reversed osteoporosis in mice through a single injection of stem cells. That is science. Wow. Uh, Kara, I agonized over the, the word completely. <laughs> I did. I'm like, God, am I going to say that or not? Is that fair or isn't it? But this is what they're reporting. Uh, oh, and, and you said scientists report that shit. This you could have written uh, anything there. Well, so – but <laughs> the word – they said that – again, this is in mice. They said that it returned the uh, the architecture, the anatomy of the bone to quote-unquote normal. Hmm. So like, well, if it's normal, that's, you know, that's completely reversing it. Uh, they injected this very specific kind of stem cell, mesenchymal stem cells. Ooh. Is that how and, you pronounce that? Yeah, well, mesenchymal. But mesenchymal. I think it's That's I would say mesenchymal. No, I think it's mesenchymal. When in doubt, the accent goes on the semi-penultimate syllable, uh, the sec- second to second to last syllable. So mesenchymal. When in doubt, that's how I, it's always that's always my go-to. Uh, anyway, they this is based on the hypothesis that a de- that defective mesenchymal stem cells are responsible for osteoporosis. So they said, okay, let's take them, we'll transplant healthy ones into mice with osteoporosis. So they injected the healthy ones into the mice with osteoporosis and then one injection. They say that because of the nature of these stem cells, there's no rejection, which is interesting. Six months later, they examined, which is like a significant chunk of the lifespan of these mice. They looked at the bones of these mice and they looked normal. Look at the bones. Look at the bones. The architecture, it looks, you know, inside the bone, it should look like coral. You know what I mean? That yes. kind of bone structure. And it says mm-hmm. it looked like normal bone structure inside the bone. That's awesome. Mm. Are they going to yeah. fast track that cool. to a human trials, I hope? Five years. <laughs> that's what that's like, that's kind of fast tracked, yeah. right? Dedicated trials could follow within the next five years is what they're saying. Uh, the, when I hear five years, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. <laughs> but that's, that is a reasonable timeline, but that assumes everything works out well. But then that's, then you need, you have to tack five years on top of that to actually do the clinical trials. So it's really yeah. 10 years. And that's why they say could. Yeah. <laughs> they qualify it all. Guys, always. it takes 10 to 15 years for a drug to go from basic science to FDA approval, period. That's how long it takes. And if you're hearing about things in the animal research phase, basically you're 10 to 15 years away. That's un- that's the way. That's the reality. Well, it's still it's still a fantastic potential. Yeah, I mean, I mean the potential that's, that's here. Dramatic. Yeah, we talk about these technological tipping points, you know, like AI, for example, driverless cars and all that. I think stem cells, you know, they were prematurely, yeah. prematurely hyped. Yeah. And we're still a long way of really the seeing the real mature full potential of them. But, you know, we're on that steep yeah. part of the curve where we're starting to see a lot of very interesting science like, being done. It's like graphene. You know something cool is going to happen. Just like, come on, hurry up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. It, that's the burden of being science communicators and technophiles. <laughs> is that we learn about this stuff five to ten years before it has any chance of being reality, and then we're jonesing for it for a decade. Yeah. And it may, and it <laughs> I, may not even ever appear. I think I could relate. I've been talking to Jay about virtual reality and nanotech since the goddamn 80s. I yeah, know. virtual reality is an especially bad example Jeez. of that. Hey, Steve. Yep. I have a quote. All right, go ahead, Jay. You give me your quote. Science knows no country because knowledge belongs to humanity. 
and is the torch which illuminates the world. Science is the highest personification of the nation because that nation will remain the first which carries the furthest the works of thought and intelligence. That's a great quote, Jay. Who Do said it. That? Say it. Louis Pasteur! <laughs> Louis Pasteur. Uh, I miss those. Awesome. I like that a lot. And I've often thought similar things like when like for example uh native americans say that like the bones of 10,000 year old bones belong to them it's mm-hmm. like yeah but it's science and science belongs to humanity you know this is it's hard yeah. to claim ownership over knowledge that really or even like you know egyptians saying that you know the ancient egypt history belongs to egyptians i get that i sort of get that you shouldn't have people coming in from the inside and stealing your stuff i'm not saying that's okay but the knowledge, the knowledge has to belong to everybody, right? And that's right. Just- I mean, show it respect, you know, and ultimately they get to keep it and display it in their museums. Fantastic. But let scientists add it for a little while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And usually that is the case yeah, with antiquities often, and things yeah. like that. Yeah, they're often shared or they're like um, international teams that do the research. Yeah. But then the home country gets to put it on permanent display. Yeah. Like Lucy. Lucy lives in Ethiopia, but she's been on tour. I just think that we uh, we have to agree that that's the case. That yeah. scientific knowledge mm-hmm. belongs to humanity. You know. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, and Kara, sure, I love doing this show with you. Yay! Thank you, a, Steve and Jay and Bob. It's a good and episode. So much fun. Yeah. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.